And we're there. Amen? All right. Well, what, uh, what a week we've had, huh? <laughs> all the craziness and all the stuff that was going on and that has been going on and that will probably continue on. And like uh, Marnay was saying, you know, if we, if we let it, we can, uh, we can be overwhelmed by that. And it's just one of those things. So keep that down, your feelers down out there on the, on the media scene. Keep it down to a minimal. Because it will. It, it will creep in and it could just, you know, start to disturb you if you let it. And there's also some, you know, you can follow some people that are uh, very commonsensical and know a lot of, uh, um, they know a lot about what's going on and they, you know, you can read some good things that just make sense. Like, hey, you know, the more tests that are available, the more people that are going to be tested, guess what? There's going to be seemingly an upswing, but really all it is is more people are being tested and they're coming, some of them are coming out positive. And so, so it's going to seem like that, and, and they don't report on that, those types of things. They report it in such a way so that they can uh, make it sound like, oh, there's an upswing in all these things, and all these people are going to die. But guess what? You know, there's uh, millions of people that die every year. And uh, every day, there's 3,000 babies that die in the United States. Thank God that some of the governors and some of the people that are in places of power have shut down, the, down, down those places so that even they can't do what their, their dastardly, uh, dastardly things that they do. Um, they're, they're held back, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And so I wanted to praise God for that. Um, one thing that I forgot to do, and, and you know, Lord, forgive me, um, during the prayer time is I want uh, to remind us um, that tomorrow, Miss uh, Miss Gina starts her uh, her chemotherapy. So, be in prayer for her tomorrow, because uh, going, you know, taking the it's painful. It hurts. I mean, you're poisoning your body. You're purposely, yeah. No, and so it's gonna, and especially with um, the several weeks that have passed by since she started having issues, the longer you go without any treatment, the more susceptible and weaker you are and you're you're weakening your system even more on purpose and it hurts and so we want to keep miss gina in uh, in prayer for that because tomorrow she's going to have her first round uh, of, uh, of chemo so um, lord willing you know that's uh, unless they cancel it you know with all the craziness you never know what could happen next um, but praise god we have a a god who is in control of everything and and um, and we can trust that because it's written um, don't know if we'll do too long of a message today, but uh, um, to, well, I want to start with uh, Isaiah. We're, we're going to dig into Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 1. We'll probably try to cover uh, the first 17 chapters. One of the things um, that I want to stress from, our, you know, from the opening, from uh, covering the last few weeks uh, um, about what Isaiah is about, the first 35 chapters, the first 39, excuse me, are all dealing with judgment. So they're going to be kind of downers in a way. Okay? And I want, I want to keep that in mind that, that it's, but there's always, and we're going to finish today even, um, Lord willing, we'll get there, and we'll see that we'll finish with kind of an upswing, and we'll see that in the midst of it all, there's, there's this mighty God who's behind everything. And, it, and even in the midst of declaring the, the, his indictment against rebellion, 
which is uh, today's title of the, of the message, is, is God in His uh, sovereignty, He declares, he, he picked Isaiah, whose name means God is salvation, or Yahweh is salvation. And he, he picked him specifically to speak to these kings that we're going to see. So he was the prophet of God who would foretell what God had told him to say. And to proclaim to the people and to the kings specifically, um, I'm going to make references to back from our, our study in Deuteronomy, because if you remember, um, the kings... They had a um, something that they were supposed to, they were scripted to do. They were supposed to do having been given the throne. Do you remember one of the important parts of, of what it was from, from our study from many years ago in Deuteronomy? Um, one of the things that each king was supposed to do was to take the book of the law and they were to write it down for themselves. They were supposed to do that by their own hand, in their own handwriting, not to have a scribe do it, but they were to do it. And that's just God's way of, I think, drilling that into a person. And um, as we uh, talked uh, a little bit about yesterday um, and during the men's thing, as the king goes, so goes the people, right? And so you have that, uh, that um, dynamic that's built into this. And so God comes to Isaiah, and I love the way how it transitions. It opens up with this vision that, that he talks about in, in Isaiah. And so the vision is going to cover the entire book of, of Isaiah. It, it's not just one vision. It's a vision that, that's a continuing one over and over and over again. He's, he's, uh, God is busily detailing uh, through Isaiah. He's God's voice to the people and to the, to the king in particular to tell him what's going to happen. And, you know, and I'll, like I said, in, in Deuteronomy, the, the judgments that are going to be unfolded were written. They were foretold way back in Deuteronomy when, right even before they possessed the land, if you remember. And so what we're going to be reading is really an unfolding of all that. God said, hey, this is the way it's going to be. And if you remember Moses, Moses told them that when they do this, and he didn't say it, I don't think, just as a, you know, as looking forward and, and under the power of the Holy Spirit, I think he was saying, when you do this, in other words, predicting that this is what was going to happen, that all these curses, and if you remember, there's three times as many curses as there are blessings, which is significant. Um, and these are just part of them. So with that being said, um, let's go ahead and start reading, and then we'll uh, we'll open up with the first uh a couple of verses, and then we'll uh, we'll go into a little prayer and uh, go from there. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, and it reads as following. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amotz. That's how it's pronounced in the Hebrew. Amotz, um, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, um, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So if you remember his, uh, his span of, of, uh, of the prophet, the spoken voice of God, is about 45 to 50 years. It's from 739 approximately to about 680 B.C. A long period of time under four different kings. And that's who he tells us. This is who he was called to speak to and to proclaim, foretell, not foretell, but foretell, 
Because, and the reason I want to stress that is because we've, sometimes we've uh, uh, mistakenly said that, you know, prophets could tell the future. Well, they, they really couldn't. God was telling them the future. So he was, they were forth telling the future because God had told them what was going to happen. And there is a difference. And so, um, and I know that in, even in Christian circles, there are people that call themselves prophets and people that follow after prophets, and, and they believe that they can prophesy the future. And which is crazy because it's really, when we look at the evidence that we have here, it's really God just speaking, saying, this is what's going to happen. I want you to tell the king this, so that you can tell the people this, that this is what's going to happen. And it's really God speaking. It's God telling the future, not the prophets. So they didn't have any special power in that sense. It's just that God chose to certain men to speak through and to speak as uh, uh, the journalists t- today are... Uh, um, they're always wanting to, to uh, say, we want to speak truth to power. You know, and, but really that's what prophets did. They spoke truth to the powers that were at hand. So um, Isaiah opens up with that and he tells the kings who are, uh, um, he would be speaking to and through for the people. And he says in verse 2, it immediately shifts. So Isaiah saying, this is the vision that Isaiah has um, that God gives. And then in verse 2, he writes, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Quickly transitions. Um, not me speaking. And it's important for that, for that to be uh, come across that way. He's immediately saying, this isn't from me. I'm not just speaking. I'm not just some guy saying stuff. This is what God is saying so he says, first of all, listen, heavens and earth, or heavens, um, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. Calling two witnesses. Why is that important? Yeah. Yeah, even here. And we're going to see that uh, this is something that he borrows, it seemingly, from, from Deuteronomy. Because Moses did the same thing. When Mo- Moses was telling them about the, the blessings and the cursings and the things that they were supposed to do, he did the same thing. And I, I remember doing a message on it that he called heaven and earth as a witness to these things, to the people, that he told them all of the things that were going to happen. Same idea here that is uh, being spoken. And then he says, we know that this is God speaking because he immediately goes into the first person and he says, sons, I have reared. And brought up, but they have revolted against me. Now that sets a theme for the whole next 39 chapters or 38 chapters that we're going into. He's already, his indictment is, first thing is, he's, he's, has sons, those that he calls sons. And he's reared them or he's brought them up, he's raised them, but they have revolted against me. That's important because, as we're going to see, he's laying the grounds for the justification of his indictment against them and against their rebellion. It's the very first thing that he, he announces. They're my, they're my children, they're my sons, my kids. They're a rebellious lot. They're a rebellious lot. But let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one who is sovereign over all things. And Lord, I thank you that you are um, a God who is so personal, um, not uh, like the impersonal God that so many people uh, believe in and have believed in for uh, since the beginning, really. And uh, Father, I, I thank you that uh, you do uh, call some your sons. 
And that yes, your sons are often, in every instance, um, rebellious. That includes us. Lord, I thank you that you're patient, that you're kind, that you're compassionate. I thank you that you save by your grace. And I thank you that you are the God who's revealed himself in all these things. And I thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of all the things that are going on, the, the judgments and the things that we're going to read about, that there's always that picture, the background. A mighty God who's holding out his hands all day long that we would turn to him. Thank you, Lord, for your, uh, for your love, for your great mercy. Thank you for how you love us. And Father, I pray that you would just open up our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to these truths in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So he says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, is the first thing that he says he begins with. And, and if we go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, we'll see that. And I want to just kind of read that in passing. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, we have Moses saying the same type of, of thing here. And uh, he's kind of mirroring what Moses has already done in uh, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 20. This is what Moses said to the people as they're about ready to go into the, to the promised land. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse, starting verse 11. He says, for this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it? For us to make, uh, for us and to make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And there's the two sides of the coin. Life and prosperity or death and adversity. And he says, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, you will not obey. And that's important to understand. Um, it's not just turning their heart away. It's that they will not obey. It's not going to do it. Um, and we've been those kids, right? With our parents. Go clean up your room. No, I'm not going to do it. We have our kids and our grandkids that uh, display the same kind of things. And so it's the same idea. If your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. And here's where, he, where uh, Isaiah mirrors what, what um, God through Isaiah is mirroring what happened there and took place here in verse 19 specifically. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death and blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. You and your descendants. 
by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and your length of days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. And so, um, just in passing, you know, just as, a, as an extra, get extra credit for this. Um, even though we do believe in God's sovereignty and God and the fact that God does predestine um, for salvation and everything, really. Um, some people think that because we believe that, that there's, we don't believe in, in free choice and, and free will. But just like he said right there, he says, you have, a cho- you have a choice to choose this. There is choice involved in that. And we do choose every single day. So when people say that to you, just remind them, well, you know, we don't believe that there's no choice and no will. We act on that all the time. And if we solely were dependent on that, we'd all be condemned. <coughs> Praise God that he steps in. Um, and uh, he's not the, uh, as uh, Vodi said yesterday, he's not the sissified Jesus that we hear about all the time across the nation. Because, <laughs> Yeah, he said some pretty funny things. I like, I love Bodhi, my brother Bodhi. Um, so he says, says the same thing. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. He's, he's setting up a witness against the, these people. He says, for the Lord speaks. And then he says, sons I have reared and brought up. Now, the word sons there. He says, sons I have, I have reared. What would that imply? What's the, what's the presupposition that we can jump to in, in the fact that he says, sons I have reared up? What's the thing that we can think about and assume real quickly? Um, well, yeah, kind of. The fact that the fact that if he has sons, then he's taking the position of a father. And there's those people that that uh, have this impersonal God that refuse to uh, um, buy into the idea that God is a father. Um, well, they're wrong because right here, if he has sons, then you could immediately assume that yeah, he's saying I, I'm a father. I'm your father. And notice that he says, I have reared up and brought up, um, but they have revolted against me. So he's saying he's, he knows that they're guilty, that they have revolted uh, against who he is. They, they didn't just revolt against the things that he said for them to do. They've, part, they've made it personal. They've turned away from him. And we're going to see that, that um, throughout the entirety of, of Isaiah, the, the, the problem was... Exactly what God said is if you intermingle with the people around you and if you don't continue in what I've told you to do, you're going to go after foreign gods just like we just read in Deuteronomy. And that's exactly what was happening. That's why he says they're revolting against me. They're, they're worshiping false gods and, and false idols. And we're going to see that over and over and over again as, as part of the theme. And in doing so, um, the New Testament tells us that they were worshiping demons, which is creepy to think about. Um, having witnessed some demonic activity, it is creepy to think that people would worship unknowingly and, and uh, unbeknownst to them, and sometimes even beknownst to them, um, that they're worshiping demons. And so it's, a, it's, when, it's a, uh, when they revolt, they're revolting against God personally, and he takes it personally. Um, so God calls all of creation to be a witness against the people and, and uh, uh, to his just and righteous indictment against them, which, uh, like Moses did in, in Deuteronomy, it's the same thing. 
the children, they were children uh, by creation. God, as the Father, He created all people. So when we say that, uh, um, I don't believe that the, the statement that the universal uh, brotherhood of man is a, is a good way of thinking of things. Um, God, specifically because of John 1, um, we know that God is a father, and he does have sons, and he calls some as sons, but he doesn't call everyone as a child of his. And we become sons and daughters of God because he is the one who has made that so. And that's important to understand, but they're children through creation in the sense that God is the one who created them, so he's a father of creation. And so, boom, you have that. They're also children by election. Okay, because through adoption, this is the way that God saves people. He adopts some. And we, if you remember from our, our uh, uh, going through Ephesians, that was the very thing that he opened up with. That we're adopted. He predestined that we should be adopted into his kingdom, into his family. And so we have that. So we're, they're, uh, um, it's by creation, it's by election, and it's also by covenant. God makes a covenant with his people. And just like we see in Genesis chapter 15 where, um, um, where the, the ox and, and uh, the bull and the, uh, I think it was a goat or lamb, they were split open and we see the, the fire and the, uh, um, the, the pot of fire going through the, the midst of that as Abraham is sleeping. Um, we see that, that, that idea that God made a covenant with his people. Abraham being the father of the faith. When we, when we speak of the faith that we enjoy and that we get to practice, the father of it, humanly speaking, is Abraham. Because he did it by faith. It was, he believed God and it was reckoned to him. So we have that uh, as part of the, the picture here. He says, these are the sons that I have raised up and brought up. I raised them. I cared for them. We've brought up children. We know that there's time involved. There's time invested. There's things that we invest of ourselves into our children and uh, so that they will be um, good, good citizens, that they will be productive citizens, hopefully. But there's this thing that's within us, this rebellion we can't help. And then he says, but they've revolted against me even though I was the one who reared them and brought them. Uh, brought them up. Then he says in verse 3, he says, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger. So he goes immediately to the idea of animals have more sense than they do. <laughs> I mean, they know who their master is and they know where to go to get food. Yeah. And, and I love the fact that you know, he, he uses the ox um, and that he uses the donkey. <laughs> Donkeys are really smart, but they're also super stubborn. And when they don't want to do anything, they'll just plop themselves down and just, they refuse to. Just like he says here, you revolted against me. You, you refuse to do that. And like Moses said, you will not obey. It's that type of an idea. But he says even they understand that they have a master. They know where to, where to go. Because look at what he says. He says, but Israel, the nation, my people at that time, does not know. My people do not understand. 
animals have more sense. Animals are more uh, um, apt and uh, more willing to obey. And they act on instinct alone. And so it's, it's interesting that he makes this, this uh, comparison. Because people are like animals. Or they're less than animals. Even animals have more sense. And that's the idea. He's, he's trying to put this in perspective to the people. And, uh, and I think part of this is, uh, um, I know that's real popular today to try to do away with shame. Um, but, you know, shame is an important thing. When we've done wrong and we know it, you know, when you've done wrong and you know it, don't clap your hands. You should be ashamed. We should. God gave us that for a reason. There's a reason for shame. Now, there is that false shame that we don't need to carry around, but there's also the reason that we should, and we should be ashamed of the fact that, hey, animals have more sense than that. And he says, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. Imagine the God of the universe, what his heart must be going through, having to proclaim this thing. And verse 4, he says, Alas, sinful nation. (laughs) They're a sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. He said, not only are the people that I'm speaking to, not only are they full of iniquity, the people that they came from were full of iniquity. Sounds a lot like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. There's bad news and good news in that. The bad news is all in that instance does cover every single person. I've yet to meet that sinless person in the flesh. The only sinless person that I've ever met and had experience knowing is Jesus Christ. That's it. There's not a, I can't look into one person's eyes, including me if I had a mirror, that I can say that is sinless. We're all guilty. He says, you're all like this. You're people weighed down with iniquity. And that idea of being weighed down, it's like you have this burden on your back. He says, offspring of evildoers, even your parents, the people that you came from were evildoers. Sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They've abandoned them. Um, this is the idea that the abandonment is, is they, they're walking away from, from Yahweh because they have no regard for Him as worthy of worship. That's the idea. It's kind of the idea of, uh, same, same idea as uh, somebody who um, dissolves their marriage because they found the love of their life. They no longer regard that person with the same care. And they've let that influence affect them. So this is the idea here. They've abandoned. They have abandoned the Lord. The one who reared them. The one who made them a nation. Remember they were a small nation. He says, I didn't pick you because you were the mightiest ones. I didn't pick you because you were the largest nation. I didn't pick you for any of those reasons. In fact, you were the least of all the nations. I picked you because I'm Yahweh. I'm holy. And I can but he says, my sons who act corruptly, they've abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Now, the Holy One of Israel is, is one of the things that we um, are going to see a lot. It's mentioned 26 different times, Isaiah. Um, God speaks it through. 
And one of the cool things about this is this is our first glimpse. Because I'm in Isaiah chapter 40 or 41, I think, in my own reading. But there's, this is a little hint, a little clue as to uh, one of the, the um, persons of the Trinity here. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. And notice that, that there is that, uh, um, they, He does use that pronoun, Him. It's a male. It's a person. And it's, He's referred to as the Holy One of Israel. And it's, He uses it 26 different times. So we'll become very familiar with it. There's also another one that we'll, we'll get used to. And that's... Um, um, not used quite as often, but in another sense, uh, later on we'll be hearing him talk about the Lord of hosts. That's the military, the warrior part of God who will come. Um, he says they have turned away from him. In verse 5, where will you be uh, stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the feet, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. These are the, um, the, the idea here is, is God is the one who is inflicting this punishment, these judgments. There's nothing sound in it. And even so, they still will not turn to Him. That's what sin does. It makes us numb to these things. We disregard it. We despise it. And it turns the hearts even harder than they were before when we're entrenched and indwelt with sin and continue to practice those things. That's what happens. The things that are necessary in order to help these things heal and, and be bound and, and be pressed out and so on and so forth. They're not even willing to do those things. People become so hardened because of the rebellion and because of, uh, of sin. Notice that he says the whole head is sick. The whole head is sick is, is the idea of the mind. Every decision that we make is sick. Strong-headed. And where does it come from? He says, and, and uh, um, the whole head is sick. And then he says that the whole heart is faint. Remember what Jesus said in the book of Matthew, that it's from the heart. It's not what you put in your mouth that makes you unclean. He said what? It's what comes out. And he says, where, where does that come from? That comes from your heart. Murders, strife, envies, um, adulteries. All those things come from within the heart of man because they're sick. And so you can't, you can't do anything good. There's no good fruit because you're so entrenched in this. And, and, and that's the idea here that he's good. He says, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's nothing sound. What is the sole of the foot? Yeah. To where? The top of the head. That's everything. There's nothing sound. In other words, the whole, your whole, everything about you, your whole being is affected by this. 
And that's what it does. That's what sin does. He says in verse 7, your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Remember that this is one of the things that was going to happen, that people were going to come, they were going to besiege the land and the cities, and they were going to destroy the, the cities and all those things. And what was one of the main things that they did when they would come in, foreign um, invaders? What's one of the first things that they would do? They would destroy the gods. Right? Because that's how their mindset was. Part of their deal was, we'll see our God, and we're going to get to that in a little bit further in uh, Isaiah. Um, one of the things of the people, the mindset of them at that time was our God. Each people had their own individual gods. So you had the God of the mountains and the God of the hills and the God of the valleys and the God of the rivers and the God of the sun, God of the moon, God of the stars, God of the heavens. You had all these different gods. And when one nation would defeat another nation, they would give it credit to that, to that God, whatever God it was. Our God is more powerful. Our God is the one who gave us this victory. Our God is more powerful than your God. And that's one of the things that they would do to, to um, uh, just uh, dishearten the people that are, that are uh, being defeated, okay? Um, he says, your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. One of the things that they would do is they would, uh, during the uh, um, prior to the harvest and in the harvest, they had uh, guys that were going out there and they would be out there in these huts and they would oversee the so that the, they weren't robbed blind by the people. And after that, they would just abandon them. They would leave them desolate there. That's the idea that's going on here. It's like your cities are being left like this. And still, you won't listen. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in the cucumber field, like a besieged city. And then he says this, verse 9. And this sounds real familiar with what we've just studied in the last few weeks on Wednesday nights. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors. Sounds an awful like an awful lot like what Jesus said in the book of Matthew, in the book of Mark, and in the book of Luke when he's talking about the elect, when he's talking about the fall of, of uh, Jerusalem, and he's talking about the destruction of the temple. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, but for the sake of the elect, he did. There would be no flesh left. Same idea that's being poured out here. It says, unless the Lord of hosts, and there's, there's another name by which we'll, uh, and this one's a more uh, of a, um, what I said earlier, this is more of the idea of the military, the warrior. The brave God. The God who is, who is uh, um, weaponized. So that's the idea. He says unless he had made this sound um, military type stand, there would be no survivors. And how do we know this? Well, it says that right there. But he also says we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Where were Sodom and Gomorrah? What, what? They were pretty much non-existent. Other than... You could maybe find the place where they were at and you could see all the destruction. Yeah, exactly. They were totally destroyed. He said, that's, that's what they're like. 
Um, but God, and we see that, there's that shadow, that picture that we, we were to keep an eye out of. Behind the scenes going, I'm going to save a few. I'm going to save all. I'm going to save a few. And then the word uh, um, here in uh, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Man, that's who he's comparing them with. Imagine that. The, the people, the wicked people and the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were just vile and they committed a, a abominable things. Their, their way of life was abominable. Um, and so God judged them. That's what he's saying. He's like, you guys are no different. I mean, that's, that would be harsh. That would be, be a terrible thing to think about if God were to speak to us in that same way. And I have to wonder, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's just really hard to think about when you think of what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah and how God judged that place. And they still knew about it. And that's what he's saying. You rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah, and he says in verse 11, he says, And what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Remember the part of the, uh, um, of the temple and, the, and the, uh, before the temple, there was, there was the, um, uh, the tent that they would have to go, the tent of meeting, and they would go and they would, that's where they would perform all the ceremonies and all the things. And God's going, You're sinful. You're coming to me in hypocrisy. What is that to me? If you were doing that from the heart, if you were doing that to truly um, be right with me, that's one thing. But now you're just doing it because you're practicing it. This is just what we do. And that's the way that it is in the world, isn't it? There's a lot of people that, that uh, um, gather on Sunday mornings usually, and that's what they do. It They do it because, well, that's just what we do. They they don't wake up Sunday morning excited and thinking about I'm going to get to go worship God with my with my brothers and sisters. I get to begin preparing my heart and my mind and to to leave all the stuff behind and just give myself to God. No, they're they're not doing that. He says, "What are your multiplied sacrifices to me?" says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? The backhand of fellowship. He says, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and a solemn assembly. I'm tired of all this. I'm tired of you fronting, to use a street word. I'm tired of you fronting, pretending, coming to me as if nothing is wrong. I'm tired of that. I can't endure it anymore. These are pretty harsh words. And I can see and by the mood that it's just, it's, this is heavy. But it's going to end on a little bit of an upswing. I promise. 
I'm, I'm sick and tired. He says, I cannot endure iniquity, the, the solemn assembly. And then verse 14, for those people who are, uh, you know, insist that, hey, God doesn't hate. Well, hold on a second. <laughs> verse 14, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. What is the implication there? At one time they were joyful. They were rejoicing. God was pleased to have them come. But now he says, no more, I hate them. I hate those things. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Wow. It's talking about prayer. When you pray to me, not only am not, I'm not even going to not listen, I'm going to hide myself from you. Whew. I mean, that just gives me chills just thinking about the idea that if I could never come to God because He's unwilling to hear me. It's a horrible thought. He says, I will hide my eyes from you. I won't even look your direction. I'm going to turn in the opposite direction. I won't even look towards you. So when you spread out your hands in prayer and I hide my eyes from you, yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. I said that it would finish on an upswing, and it will. I love the fact that God continually, in His compassion, even in His most angry, and I love the fact that we have a God who expresses that. I'm tired of all this stuff. I'm sick of it. And I'm not going to endure it anymore. And He rises up in wrath and judges. That's our God. He's not this sissy God that, oh, you know, it's okay. I understand. It's all right. No. No, not the holy God that we serve. Not at all. But he is compassionate. And he is loving. Listen to what he says here in the last couple of verses here. And then we'll finish. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. I love that. And his love and his compassion. He's reminding them, you can still turn. That picture that I've tried to paint for you guys. In the backdrop, God with his hands outstretched all day long. Turn. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds. And from my sight. Cease to do evil. Stop it. Quit it. Don't do it anymore. Remove it. He says, learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. He's pleading with them, listen, turn. See, there's choice involved. There's will involved. Now we're going to see that more and more as he, he goes, and we're going to stop there for today, but that's, that's the, the, the heavy part of this first chapter. And we only got 39 left to go. Before it starts turning, and there's still going to be judgments, but there's going to be a lot more hope. And we're going to see the central figure that continually will, will start to bubble up more and more, the Holy One of Israel. And it's going to reveal, God will reveal more and more who He is to these people.
And so with that, um, that is what God calls. He continually says, turn, turn, turn to me. I'm reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, I believe it is. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me from gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's essentially what God is saying right here to His people. Turn. Would you just turn? And remember, repentance it doesn't just, it's not just a decision to turn from the direction that you were going. It's, a, it's turning to the direction of God. That's what He's saying. Turn into my direction. There's still time. You know, I'm thinking about those memes that I see on Facebook where you... You have, and I spoke about this last week, and I just can't get it out of my mind, where people are all concerned about this little virus and all these other supposed things that they have no control over, really. I mean, anytime we go shopping and we have to put our card in the reader and then touch the numbers, guess what? Somebody's touched that before you. There's really no way to control this thing except, you know, minimize what you can. And they don't give thought that one day, as Vodi read from Revelation chapter 19, a pretty scary picture of the Christ that's going to come. See, when he came, and in, in uh, a couple of weeks we'll be celebrating, um, we'll be celebrating about the, uh, um, the, the triumphal entry. He came on a donkey that time. When he comes next time, he's on a horse to make war. That's a, that's a scary thought of a mighty God who's almighty and full of wrath and anger. And people are worried about a little virus, about not having enough toilet paper. And they won't give thought to the idea, one day you're going to come before the king of kings with that sword in his hand. What will you do then? That is what we should fear. That God who has the power to judge. And Jesus himself said, don't fear man who can take your life and then nothing. Fear the one that can both take your life and cast you into hellfire. That's the one that we need to be worried about or concerned with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you, um, uh, this message swings to the goodness, to your compassion, to your call to your people, your remnant, who will listen, who hear the voice of their shepherd and know that he is theirs. Thank you, Lord, for those things, for these warnings that you give us, Father. And I pray that you would just Help those that are listening that have never given their life to Christ that they would. That they would come unto Him. That they would put on His burden. And that they would put on His yoke. And indeed find that it is light. His burden is light. And that they can find forgiveness and redemption and wholeness. And they needn't fear the living God. 
in that way as a judge. But they can love the Lord our God who's a father who loves his children. Thank you, Lord, for the discipline that you give us from time to time. We need it. Thank you for conviction, which hurts so deeply. Thank you that you don't turn away from those things because you love us and you warn us. Thank you, Lord, that you are the great God who saves and that you are the one who is pictured here, calling to your people to turn, to do good, to do what is right, to take care of the orphan and the widow and all these things. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would just be glorified, that your majesty would be known, that you would be exalted, and that your kingdom would be increased. For your name's sake and for your glory's sake, we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.